Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel 15. <clears throat> We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Absalom's rebellion, his conspiracy has, has begun. Uh, really, as we read this story, we find out uh, that uh, this rebellion has existed in Absalom's heart for a long, long time. It's amazing to me how many years go by between the chapters that we've been looking at, how long, how patiently Absalom has, has waited and plotted and planned uh, to usurp uh, the throne from his own father. I mean, that's uh, just doesn't get any lower than that, I guess. Of course, last week, as we finished uh, the very first paragraph there in chapter 15, uh, verse 6 ends with these words. It says, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. And of course, Neil rightly pointed out that that word stole means that Absalom deceived the people, all right? He tricked them. Uh, and he did that in order to gain their devotion, their loyalty. Uh, he pretended to be someone that he was not, and he made promises that he never intended to keep. Uh, and of course, you know, not much has changed in politics over the last 3,000 years, has it? Uh, we must always be careful about who we listen to, and not just during political campaigns, all right? I would warn you and encourage you, you need to pray as you watch the debates and listen to the speeches. Pray that God would open your eyes to the reality of what's going on right before you. I don't think that everybody in Israel just all of a sudden decided that David's not a good king. We need to follow Absalom. I think that this was something that came about after years and years of manipulative deception and persuasion on the part of Absalom. People that in their right minds, if they had been thinking rightly, would have continued to support and follow David. Uh, but they had the wool pulled over their eyes. Absalom, of course, as we were told back in chapter 14, was a handsome man. Uh, he was articulate. He was personable. Uh, he had a way with people, and so he was likable. Uh, he was easy to be around. Uh, the kind of guy that we'd like to, to have as our king, one that's like us. Uh, but he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a man who should not have been trusted. Years after this historical event, Jesus was asked this question. And he was asked it as he was always asked questions, or most of the time asked questions by the religious leaders of his day. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to get something on him, something that they could hold against him. And so the question that was raised was this, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered that day, and he said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And what Jesus was teaching then, and what we need to understand now, and really what the people of Israel should have understood 3,000 years ago, 
is that before anyone else, we should be devoted to God. And church, that's what we need to understand as we live our lives, as we face this future together, as we listen to the campaign speeches and the, the debates that will be aired on, on television, as we, as we read about where these candidates stand and what they stand for. First and foremost, our allegiance, our devotion should be to God. And if we can get that right, then we are well on our way to getting the rest of it Right. Our loyalty should always be to God first and to all others second, somewhere else down the line. And the reality is if we fail to keep our eyes on the Lord, to keep our minds fixed on what God's word says to us, then we will be easy prey for the Absaloms of our day. And let me tell you, they're all around us. Men just like him who are power hungry. They don't love us. They're not for us. They have no intention of representing us. They're in it for themselves, just as Absalom was. Make no mistake about it. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He didn't win their hearts. David had won their hearts at one time. Standing beside them in battle, courageously defending Israel against her enemies. Absalom had never done that. He stole their hearts. Well, let's pick up. I want to read this first portion of 2 Samuel 15. We're going to read verses 7 down through verse 12, and then we'll, we'll read some more a little bit later. But again, here we go. At the end of four years, so four years has passed now since Absalom began this conspiracy, this, this campaign against his father, this rebellion. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, so he's talking to his father, King David, please let me go and pay my vows, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur, in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. You know, the scripture says that we're really not to vow vows, all right? But in the event that we do, we should keep our vow quickly. Something should have raised a red flag in David's mind. It had been four years at least since Absalom had vowed this vow. Why all of a sudden was he so ready to keep it? Then the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem. They were invited guests. And notice this, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, uh, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let's pray and we'll look at these and then some others as well. Father, we are thankful today for your presence, not only in our midst here, Lord, we know that we can count on you to gather with us when we gather to worship. Lord, we can count on you to speak to us through your word. You've given us uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us, to guide us 
into truth. Lord, you've told us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of you and that you will give us wisdom generously. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning. Open our eyes to the reality of your word, to the truth of your word. Help us not to be deceived as the people of Israel were deceived by Absalom. Give us strength and courage to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to be a people of his word. Lord, help us to so thoroughly know your word that it becomes increasingly difficult to fool us. So, Lord, we ask you to do these things. And we ask you, Father, to to help us to continue uh, to be loyal citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, to love you with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, to love our neighbor as ourself. Give us the strength and the courage to do that. And we'll give you praise and thanks for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. We've, uh, of course, called this series of messages uh, Legacy, Lessons from the Life of Absalom. And indeed, we should be learning some lessons uh, from Absalom. But once again, in our chapter, David kind of takes the forefront, uh, becomes the main character in this passage uh, that we will be looking at this morning. And, and so what we're going to see, I've, just, I've got three points, and they'll be up on the, the screens when uh, it is time for them to be up on the screens. We're going to look, first of all, at Absalom, the, the son who supplanted him. All right, Absalom is going to, to deceive uh, the people into rebelling against his father. Uh, we're also going to see that David had servants who supported him. All right. In spite of his failures, he still had those who were loyal to him. And then last, of course, we'll see, and most importantly, that David still had a sovereign who sustained him. God, the Father, would, would sustain David even through these dark days of his life. So first of all, let's deal with Absalom, this son who supplanted him. And the word supplant, I think it's a word we've heard of. Most of us are familiar with that word uh, because whenever we uh, have heard messages about Jacob from the Old Testament, that's what Jacob's name means, right? A supplanter, uh, one who trips by the heel. Uh, it means a, a deceiver. Uh, Absalom was deceptively usurping authority that rightfully belonged to his father, the king. And so that word supplant means it, it, well, if you just look it up in the dictionary, it means to remove or replace through strategy, through treachery, or through force. And, of course, uh, Absalom had been strategizing for years, making his plans, plotting against his father, David. He was treacherous in the sense that he was willing to do anything, to use anybody to get what he wanted. And, of course, ultimately we'll see him uh, even begin to use military force uh, to overthrow uh, his father's kingdom. Uh, again, he had patiently waited, scheming for four years. Uh, and now, as we begin uh, our message this morning, he's ready for his rebellion to be implemented. But, but Scripture reveals, again, something about Absalom that should certainly catch our attention. The very first thing that we read of here is that he went to his father and he made a request of him. And he tells his dad that when I was in Hebron, I made a vow to the Lord. So he's implying that all of those years that he spent uh, away from the palace, he had been seeking the Lord, uh, seeking his guidance, seeking his 
help. And I made this vow to the Lord that I promised if I was ever allowed to go back into the palace, into the presence of the king, uh, then I would, I would keep this vow. And so he asks his father, can I go to Hebron to do what I promised God I would do? He's pretending to be a man of piety, a man, a religious man. And again, as you listen to the candidates, as they run for office, as they talk about their faith in God, as they make attempts to quote scripture, listen to them with open ears and an open heart. Absalom appeared at this point to be a man of God, a man of faith, a man who desired to keep his vow that he had vowed to God. But we know that that's not really true. It was just a a lie. He was pretending to be someone that he was not. Please, he said, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. And let me just say this to you, church. True followers of God, genuine Christians, do not lie in order to get what they want. I mean, that's a simple truth, right? When we see people lie repeatedly, time after time after time, we should get the idea that these guys are liars and they're willing to say whatever they need to say in order to get our support, right? That's what Absalom was doing. He was lying. He had no intention of going to Hebron to offer anything to God. It was there in Hebron where the rebellion was going to start. He was going to rebel against not only his father David, but we have to remember David was a man after God's heart. David was the king of Israel because of God. God had put him there in that position. So Absalom's rebellion against David was first and foremost a rebellion against God, and he pretended to be a follower of God so that he could effect his rebellion against God. Then we see his, his plot. Just as when Absalom had killed Amnon, Absalom had a plan to overthrow his father. All right, again, four years, really more than that. I believe he had been plotting for, for, for far longer than that. that is, this has been his, his plan all along, his scheme all along to overthrow his father, to seize the throne. But here specifically, and again, it's very much like what took place uh, when he killed Absalom or, ha- or when he had Amnon killed. Said Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, and this is what he told them. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, shout, proclaim, Absalom is king in Hebron. That was his plan. He had stolen the hearts of the people, and now he was going to have the people initiated by these secret messengers declare he was king, king in Hebron at least, and soon to be king in Jerusalem is what he knew everyone would understand. So here's the second thing. True followers of Jesus do not advance themselves by secret scheming, all right? But they patiently wait for the Lord to elevate them. There's a wonderful passage of scripture in the Gospels where Jesus tells his own disciples, he says, look, when you're invited to the king's feast, he said, don't sit at the head of the table. 
He said, no, you take the lowest seat, the seat furthest from the limelight, and you wait until the king invites you to take the seat of prominence. Church, that's what we need to be looking for as we look for men in leadership, whether we're looking for a pastor, whether we're looking for a president, whether we're looking for local leaders. We need to look for men and women who are not promoting themselves, but are waiting for the Lord to promote them, to elevate them to positions of authority and power. That's what God does. The Bible teaches us that every man who serves in a position of authority is there by the will of God. God appoints people to places of, 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 of prominence, of service, of authority. It's God that does that. When people too heartily promote themselves, there's always a problem that we just haven't seen, perhaps. So Absalom has been plotting for all these years to overthrow his father, to rebel against God. And of course, there's always this story, this pretense, this, uh, again, this deception. It says, when Absalom went, 200 men from Jerusalem were invited guests. So Absalom invited leaders from the nation of Israel, leaders that supposedly at this point were still loyal to David. But Absalom invites them under false pretenses. They knew nothing, the scripture says. They were there in their innocence. They knew nothing. They didn't know what Absalom was up to any more than <clears throat> it appears that David knew what Absalom was up to. True men of God do not use others for their own ends. But true men of God spend themselves, sacrifice themselves, lay down their lives for others. And again, that's what true leaders do. And those are the kind of leaders that we need to be looking for. Absalom was not the kind of leader that the nation of Israel should have been going after. <clears throat> but all too often we find that he's exactly the kind of leader that people go after, right? Good-looking, articulate, personable. That's our guy. He relates to us. But does he love the Lord? Does he relate to us in the way that is most important? Absalom used these 200 men from Jerusalem to give the appearance to David <clears throat> that even those who had once followed him were no longer followers. True men of God don't do that. And then, of course, as we find out, and, and I'm so thankful that God chose to, to speak this verse the way that he did. Look at the very end of verse 12. It says, And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So it shouldn't surprise us that Absalom's deception worked, because that kind of deception has continued to work throughout the history of mankind. <clears throat> if we could open the devil's playbook, the very first word there, and perhaps the only word, deceive. That's all he does. He deceives us in every way that he can. Absalom had deceived the people. He had manipulated them. 
He had stolen their hearts. Not, not simply their affection, but their, their minds. They had decided that he's like us. He's the one we want. He understands what we want him to understand. He's our guy. And I'm telling you, that's what the whole story of Saul should have taught us in 1 Samuel. So when the people get to pick their guy, they don't usually pick right. We need a man after God's heart. We need a man that God has chosen. That's what Israel needed. And David was that man, not Absalom. In spite of the fact that Absalom's popularity continued to grow. And again, notice that God calls Absalom's actions what they truly are. They were a conspiracy. This wasn't a campaign. They didn't have elections every four years to decide who would be king. This was a coup. This was a takeover. The word conspiracy speaks of a collaborative effort, a cooperative effort to commit treason. That's what was going on here. This wasn't the right way for Absalom to ascend to the throne. The reality is, from everything that we know, had Absalom just waited patiently for the Lord's will to take its course, he would have been the next king of Israel. But he didn't wait. He conspired against the king. He conspired against the Lord. And sadly, Absalom's treacherous tactics worked. It's amazing to me how often these tactics work. Time after time after time, we, the people of God, fall for the lies, even as Israel fell for the lies. So the conspiracy grew. And the people with Absalom kept increasing more and more, lined up behind him. Dark days for David. As a matter of fact, a message comes to David as we begin the next paragraph there. A message comes to David, and, and it simply says this, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. <clears throat> David was aware of what was going on. And now David is absolutely convinced that, that it is, well, beyond the time that he can do anything about it. His only recourse at this point is to flee Jerusalem and to take those with him that continued to support him. And I think that's the important thing that we need to understand. There were those who continued to support him. There were servants of David who supported him. Look at what it says. Though the hearts of the men had gone after Absalom... David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. David knew something about his son. David knew that if he didn't get himself and all of those who followed him out of Jerusalem, Absalom would probably kill him. He would lay siege to the city and kill David along with his followers. So he said, We've got to go. Go quickly, he said, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to, to the king, listen to this, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. Now you want to talk about loyalty. <clears throat> That's loyalty. David, if you say we need to uproot our families and leave Jerusalem, we're with you. We're with you. Again, These servants were a part of the, well, a part of David's household. Uh, they were ministers within 
the palace. Some with advisory roles, perhaps. Others with more menial jobs, cooks, cleaners, servants in the, in the way that we would think that word would be used. And so when this message comes to David, that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, I mean, first of all, can you imagine <clears throat> how heartbreaking that must have been for David? Not only that his own people would rebel against him, but they would do so following the rebellion of his own son. Heartbreaking. You talk about dark days. As Neil reminded us last week, David may not have been a great father, but he was a great king. He's remembered to this day as the greatest king that Israel's ever had. David was a great king. David didn't do everything wrong. David wasn't a complete failure of a man. And even now, his first instinct is to protect those of his household. It's admirable. It's admirable to see David taking the lead here to protect his servants, those who had taken care of him. So they say, we're ready to do whatever, whatever you decide, David. So the king went out and all his household after him. The king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. There is this huge procession leaving, heading east out of Jerusalem. They stop at the last house as they're making their escape. It says, all the servants, verse 18, all the servants passed by him. The Cherethites, the Pelethites, the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, this is, this is such a wonderful scene. Not only were there servants who had served David within his household, but these men, these Cherethites, Pelethites, Gittites, these were soldiers. These were fighting men. These were men that we could characterize as David's palace guard. They were his bodyguards. They were the guys who, who defended him with weapons, uh, who would lay down their lives for him. And they remained loyal to David. Again, it says something about David and his loyalty to the, to the Lord and to his people. His soldiers were, were still with him. David says to Ittai, he says, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. Interesting here that he refers to Absalom as the king. Uh, I guess he could see the handwriting on the wall like everybody else. Go back, he says, stay with the king. For you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home. And you came only yesterday. In other words, you haven't been with me that long. You don't owe me this kind of loyalty. You don't need to uproot yourselves and your family and follow after me out into a wilderness. I'm not even sure where I'm going, David said. You don't have to do this. Go back. Stay here in Jerusalem. But this is what Ittai answered to the king, verse 21. He says, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. That's what you call loyalty right there. Wherever you go, David, whether it means death for us or whether it means life, we're with you. I'm with you. And my men are with you. My family is with you. We're with you. 
David still had servants who supported him, who loved him, who were with him. David, as I said a moment ago, he had not stolen their hearts. David had won their loyalty by standing beside them in the thickest of battles. They knew him intimately, and they trusted him with their lives. That's what standing together in the fight does, right, church? As we stand together shoulder to shoulder, fighting that good fight of faith together, I think so often we hear those words in the New Testament and we personalize them. And it's not that we shouldn't personalize them. As individuals, as men, as women, as men and women of God, we should fight the good fight of faith. But God's brought us together to do that as a church. We stand together. We learn that we can trust one another, even with our lives. That's what these men had learned about David, and they were going with him. If it meant death, oh well. If it meant life, okay. But we're going with you. And here's, here's what we should learn from this. Even when it seems that we've been abandoned by our families, rejected by our friends, we need to remember there are always those true friends who stick by our side. God gives us some true friends, right? I know Neil has said this over the years. I agree with it wholeheartedly. The relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is closer than any blood relationship we have with anybody on the planet. That's a closer relationship. The Bible tells us that there are friends who will stick by our side through all kinds of trouble. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. God brings people into our lives that are truly friends, people who will stick by us even through times of adversity. And you know, the reality is when people who we thought were our friends abandon us when the times get tough, they just demonstrate that they weren't really true friends. David had some true friends. His son had rebelled against him. His son had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. But these servants, these soldiers, they were with David. They were going to stick with him. And of course, as important as it is that we remember that when it seems that everybody has abandoned us, that's not ever really the case. Keep looking at my watch. I don't want to go too long. But I, I remember days. You know, Rick talked about dark days, days that he didn't think he was going to get through. There have been a few days like that for me around here. I can remember one day in particular. I was so concerned about what was happening and how to lead this church through what was happening. And I was here. I, I came to the church. I was in my office and I wasn't on my knees with my hands lifted up. I was pacing. I was walking back and forth from one area of my office to the other, and I was praying, and I was asking God to show me what I should do, and I had the Bible open. And all of a sudden, I had this sense that I wasn't alone anymore. And I wasn't. There were two people in the office, Dale and Vicki Arrington. How they knew I was there, I don't know. But they came and asked me if they could take me to lunch. 
And uh, in that moment, to have two people standing there inviting me to lunch, well, I meant more than I could even imagine to know that I had two people who were with me. Wasn't quite sure how many others were with me, but I knew I had two that were with me. There they were, with me. And I don't think I went to lunch with you that day, Dale, but I'll always remember that. I stayed and I prayed and I began to pray and read the scripture with a different perspective. I wasn't alone in this battle. And church, we're never alone. There are always those those, and, and not that Dale and Vicki were a surprise that they were there. They, that wasn't a surprise to me. But sometimes God will send people to just surprise you, to think that they're with you. They're going to stand by you. So there were servants and soldiers who supported David. There are always those who will support you. And of course, even if you can't find somebody, even if... Dale and Vicki don't walk into your office and invite you to lunch. The one person that you can always count on is Jesus. Again, he's the one that promised never to leave us nor forsake us, right? He's not going to go back on that promise. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. If the whole world is against you, you can always count on that one to be with you. And let me tell you, if Jesus is with you, it doesn't matter whether the whole world's with you or not. Jesus is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's what Proverbs 18, 24 says. It doesn't name Jesus there. It simply reminds us that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that friend, no doubt, is Jesus. So, David's son sought to supplant him. It was indeed a dark day. But David had servants and soldiers who supported him. And then the, the last thing I want to point out is just at the very end of this passage of Scripture, there's this discussion. The, the priests came with the Ark of the Covenant. They, they, were, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They were going to leave Jerusalem uh, and take the Ark of the Covenant with them. And when David sees these men with the Ark of the Covenant, he says, you need to go back. You need to go back. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant needs to remain in Jerusalem. It needs to be there in the temple. Uh, God has, has set it up that way. You guys need to go back. I appreciate you being here, but you need to go back. Uh, and then David says this thing. Down in verses 24 and 25. Really, let's look at 25. He said to, to the priest Zadok, he said, carry the ark of God back into the city. And, this, this, and then listen to this. And if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, then he'll bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. David knew that ultimately, in spite of the wonderful comfort that he must have felt, knowing that these servants, these soldiers were still loyal to him, he knew ultimately that he was in God's hands. Remember, he was a man after God's heart. <clears throat> I'm convinced that when we hear that and when we say that, that we think primarily what that means is that David faithfully followed God throughout his life. 
I think that's what we think. When we, when we read that David was a man after God's own heart, we think of the young David who, who, empowered by the Lord, was able to defend his father's flocks, killing lions and bears. We think of the young man who went out to face the giant Goliath and, again, empowered by God, defeated that giant on the battlefield. We think of David who killed his tens of thousands we think of that man following after God, having a heart for God, but that's not really what that means. There is a truth to that. I believe David was a man after God's heart in the sense David wanted to please God. David trusted God to, to protect him, to provide for him. David did that. But what those words mean first and foremost is that David was God's choice. Again, that whole saying came out of the context of the people wanting Saul to be their king and God wanting David to be their king. Saul was a man after the people's heart. So is Absalom. They were the people's choice. But David was God's choice. God had chosen David to be king. And I guess what I want you to know this morning is that if you're a follower of Jesus, God has chosen you to be his child. You're chosen by God, just like David was chosen by God. You're God's choice. That should matter to us when we go through dark days. That should be a comfort to us. Yes, there may be those few human beings who... who reveal their loyalty to us. And I know that's always a great comfort to know that you've got some people who are with you. But let me tell you, again, if nobody was with you, only the Lord, that's enough. David had been sovereignly chosen by God to be king of Israel. You have been sovereignly chosen by God to be a child of the king, to be a Christian, to be a part of God's church. And here's... Again, David's life and is such an encouragement to me. David had sinned greatly, had he not? David had, had far from lived a perfect life. He had failed his family, as we've pointed out time and time again. He had failed the people of Israel in so many ways. But as I said earlier, David's failures, just like yours, are not final. Not when God is our God. Not when Christ is our Savior. Our failures are not final. They don't define us. They may bring consequences into our lives. That's what we're seeing played out before us. The very things that David had been told by the prophet of God were going to happen are happening. This is God at work in David's life. But God wasn't through with David. God was still with David. God was still on David's side. David knew it. He was still a man after God's heart. He was still God's man. And though he was experiencing the very consequences that God had said would come, he was trusting the Lord, really because he was experiencing the very consequences. God had said, David, this is what's going to happen. And so as David looks at the darkness around him, at the rebellion of his son, at the hearts of the people of Israel being stolen by Absalom, you know he's thinking, well, this is what God said would happen. God told me the truth. He always does. And I can trust him 
even in these dark days. Again, even though it must have seemed like the whole world was coming to an end, David trusted God. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. You don't think that perhaps David, the mighty warrior that he was, didn't do a quick check? All right, I got the, I got the Cherethites, I got the Pelethites, I got the Gittites. I got this many men ready to take up their sword and fight for me. You don't think he perhaps didn't think that as he looked around, as he watched all of these people parade past him? I, I bet you David had some ideas of how he could stop this rebellion in its tracks. He, he was probably thinking right then what he might be able to do. I mean, he had some powerful people, an army. Might have been a small army, but it was an army. David didn't do that. He trusted God to do what was best for him. You take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. You put it there in its place. And if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, then he'll bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. David trusted God to do what was best for him. Even in the darkest of moments, God will always do what's best for us. We just need to trust him. Yeah, there's going to be some dark days in our lives. God is with us, and he will do what is best for us. You know, in reality, God is really the only one we can trust to always do the right thing for us, right? I mean, as much as we may want to do the right thing for our people, we're just men and women, right? Human beings, fallen human beings, frail, sinful human beings, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make promises we don't keep, even if we intended to keep them when we made them. But God, he will always do the right thing for us. He will never fail us. Our families may abandon us. God won't. Our friends may reject us. God never will. God will always remain loyal to his people. So here's the question this morning, church. If God will always remain, remain loyal to his people, then you've got to ask yourself this question, am I one of God's people? Lots of people pretend to be religious, just like Absalom. They put on a good show. They pay their vow. They go to church. But they don't really know the Lord, not really one of God's people. Are you one of God's people? Have you ceased from your rebellion, repented of your sin, and received Christ Jesus, God's Son, as your Savior? That's the question you need to ask yourself.